Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 9th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. An inquiry into how the COVID pandemic was managed in this country is to be held this year. It's being scoped out. Um, It will be wider than the uh, health response. It'll take into account the economic response and other responses as well. Uh, we hope to have it established by mid-year and we will be guided by what they're doing in other countries. There will be many questions for the government and for the country's health services. We do intend that it would examine uh, how nursing homes handle COVID as well. But I do think we need to be fair to the management and staff of nursing homes too. Um, this was an unprecedented event uh, in, in our lifetimes, a pandemic, a new virus. And I don't think anyone um, had a... Um, um, manual or, or roadmap, if you like, as to how it could be best um, uh, best managed. How detailed uh, the inquiry is going to be has yet to be decided. Talking about it being scoped out, would it be possible to, uh, to get a timeline on how long this scoping exercise would take? And then if we could get the detail as soon as possible in relation to the remit and whether we're talking about individual modules and then a timeline on the inquiry. So how will this address specific questions being asked about specific nursing homes? Um, Look, I spoke to you before previously in relation to Jalgan House, the 23 people that died there. Obviously, the fact that the RCSI hospital group took over there, um, which makes it different, and that the families have been promised by ministers that there will be a mechanism and provided them to provide the answers and closure. We need to ensure that this happens. The Taoiseach's response to Sinn Féin's Rory O'Muraku didn't make any reference to those promises that have been made to the Dalgan House nursing home families. We're scoping it out at the moment. Um, we'd hope to have it uh, established, and it would be established by the Oireachtas um, uh, mid-year. Um, it won't just be about the state's response, it'll be about the wider response from all society, including the private sector, uh, and it's impossible to put a time frame on it, but given the scope and scale of it, it could take a long time, quite frankly, and that's that's the truth of it. The Taoiseach, Leo Vratker, speaking in uh, the doll yesterday, responding to Sinn Féin's Rory Murku, who's on the line with us, and a very good morning to you. The Taoiseach morning, was Michael. very non-committal, wasn't he, uh, in terms of uh, responding to the families of Jalgen House? Um, that's it. Now, sometimes you have limited time when you're dealing with Taoiseach's questions. Uh, look, I've spoken to the Taoiseach in relation to this, uh, I'm not entirely shocked in relation to the timeline he's talking about, about the overall inquiry. And he did mention earlier that he's obviously looking at some sort of 
um, module in relation to nursing homes now. It would obviously need to be fairly wide-ranging and he would need to make sure that he got the likes of care champions that are looking for this and obviously a number of the families that are uh, engaged in this campaign for um, public inquiries. And again, I will make the point and and I spoke to the Taoiseach, um, as I say, n- not in public, I might add, um, that he, he was aware of the fact of the RCSI hospital group taking it over. He was aware of the fact that that made it different. And he, uh, like he is in no doubt in relation to the promises that have been made by uh, Stephen Donnelly and Mary Butler directly to these families. Um, yeah, I would have much preferred there was an answer in relation to that in, in public, but I, I unfortunately I don't think this will be the last time we'll be bringing it up. And curious though that there was no reference to Dalgan House. Uh, the last Taoiseach ruled out a uh, commission of inquiry uh, and then there was talk of a mechanism, but no mention of Dalgan House by the current Taoiseach yesterday. No, no, we didn't. And as I say, I would have much preferred that. Now, I have spoken to him in relation to it, um, and he is aware of the particular circumstances in it. I would like to think in the very near future that we're going to get the detail in relation to what this wider um, this wider inquiry in relation to the state's response to COVID. And here I guess that that's going to deal in everything from PPE in relation to um the pop payments and the response of government from a financial point of view. And that's all necessary stuff because we, we don't know what we're going to face into the future as regards pandemics. Yeah. We know that there are wider issues in relation to health care and specifically elder care. We have had multiple reports before and after COVID we, um, in relation to the failings. We know that HICWA have constantly looked for further powers, but we need to make sure that we have a wide-ranging, uh, we have a wide-ranging inquiry and we're talking about very specific inquiries mm. when we're talking about the likes of Jalgen House. But do you and, anticipate that the deaths of 23 people in Jalgen House will be part of this very comprehensive inquiry that won't start, it seems, from what Leo Bradker was saying yesterday, till the middle of the year sometime and will run till at least the end of the year and possibly go on for years. Uh, and... Uh, we're talking uh, about uh, questions that have been asked now for close on three years. Yeah. Well, look, the previous Taoiseach, Michael Martin, had said, or he spoke about what he didn't want to see in relation to an inquiry. Um, but we're very soon we need to see what sort of inquiry they are talking about. The, the one thing that was said was there would be an... L- previously was this would be time limited and it would have the capacity to get the answers that are required but we're going to see need to see detail and in fairness it's not for me to decide whether this sort this sort of inquiry that the government are going to propose um, is acceptable to the families. Mm. It will be it will be up to the government okay. to put a proposal forward to come back to people. But do you think that that's and the it, mechanism that they were talking about? That it would be a very small part of this very broad ranging inquiry. Well, it would want to be far more significant than that. But look, the family are looking, and if you talk about the families of Jalgan House, they're looking for an inquiry specific to Jalgan House and they can provide the answers. Because look, we know the, the amazing work that they have done in relation to FOI requests, multiple meetings, whether that's with um, obviously seeking particular details and files, not not all of which they've been able to get, and there's wider issues in relation in relation to that. And, you know, um, obviously patient records. Um, but they've dealt with the HSE, they've dealt with individual parts of the HSE, they've dealt with the RCSI hospital group. And at this stage, you know, the, the nicest way I can put it is mm. there are multiple narratives 
Um, there's a huge amount in the public domain. There are huge answers in relation to what happened in Jalgen House and who knew what at what time. And there needs to be some form of inquiry that can provide the answers. So we need details from government and it would have to be incredibly significant um, to be able to deliver on this. So, no, I don't think we can talk about one small module um, as part of a wider inquiry. Um, but look, we need the detail from government. It's up to them, for the want of a better term, to sell this. We all know that we need the absolute answers in relation to what went wrong, what can be done better, mm. the learnings, and then that the individual cases that families can be provided with the answers that they require and so, some element of closure. Because like, we, we can't forget that these are families that have gone through a huge level yeah. of trauma, of losing a loved one, and then they have to go through this element of fighting the state. Yeah. And, and that's the problem across the board sometimes. Well, I'm very, hesi- I'm very hesitant to say this, uh, but I am going to ask you if you agree with what I'm saying, which is uh, you, I wouldn't be very confident from what I've heard. There's nothing to make me very confident from what I've heard that the families are going to be satisfied by the end of this. Well, I met with the I met with num- with a number of uh, the family members in, in the last while. Uh, Mary Lou McDonald and David Cullinan also did a did, did a did a meeting with them. And look, I know there are certain worries among some of them that would be in agreement with where you are that they do not foresee um, delivery of a mechanism that will provide them with the answers of a proper level inquiry. But they, uh, the fact that this has now been talked about, that that is obviously a positive. There's a promise that there will be something, but we need the details. That's that's the fact. There is, there is a huge amount of unease. We have never seen this state exactly put itself forward in relation to mm. providing people answers in these sort of circumstances. But there's, I mean, as it stands, and you know, I mean, of course, I'm jumping to conclusions, but. I mean, there couldn't be any expectation that Dalgan House is going to be even mentioned in the terms of reference. It'll be mentioned, the nursing homes will be referenced as we heard from the Taoiseach there, but no specific nursing home, I take it. Well, well, here, see, at this stage, we have that little detail, we can't be sure. Would I be a lot happier that um, that he would that the Taoiseach would have given an answer that spoke about, we will be dealing with nursing homes in a really significant way. We may be looking at individual modules in relation to very specific cases, such as Jalgan House, and myself and yourself would be having a much different conversation. Very different. Yeah. I, I have no doubt that myself and many other elected mm. representatives from uh, across the county will be having a huge amount of interactions with the Taoiseach and the Minister for Health and mm. everyone else until we find out what we're dealing with. And like I say, it'll be the families that'll make a determination on whether um, what has been proposed by government is going to be good enough. And beyond that, as I say, we also need something that can actually get to the bottom of it, not only from providing closure, but also making sure that we do learn everything that we need to and we make sure we have better protocols. And we also know that, like as yeah. I say, a huge amount of reports have been carried out. And I doubt that the actions have been taken, whether we're talking about ratios in relation to um, particular uh, skilled staff, mm. whether we're talking about you know everything from infection control and then that's before we deal with the fact that you know, people, people watch, haven't got to the bottom of the uh, home care. And if uh, people uh, could have been prevented from dying, let alone families standing outside in uh, the cold, 
looking through a window, watching a loved one passed away, not being able to be with them. They're very, very serious questions. And I, pain I, heaped on pain, yeah, Michael, yes. Absolutely. Uh, now, uh, we'll be talking about nursing homes in a, a different context in a, a few moments uh, and how nursing home patients were charged because they were in private nursing homes when they had medical cards. Uh, that's going to dominate uh, the business of the doll again today, as indeed will the benefits that were denied to people with disabilities. Uh, there'll be forensic questioning, I'm sure, as part of the statements uh, that will be made in the House today. The government uh, seems to feel, though, that it is legally sound at this stage. Well, that's it. And obviously they've got the, the, the AG report. But look, see sometimes when you're looking at it from a legal point of view, what, what is the job of a lawyer or solicitor? It is to protect you, to ensure that you don't admit any liability. And, and I think it's fair to say at this stage that the state made a determination a long time ago that if anybody comes, whether they're looking for their rights or anything else, that you make sure that you point out that the state isn't a soft touch. And, in, you know, you almost... Uh, it's like the state will say, we have more legal firepower than you and we will put your lights out. Now, the problem with that is you're talking about instances where the state has failed some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And there really has to be a determination beyond law. And we know there are questions in relation to, you know, in certain cases, well, the non-payment of these, like, is, is, is downright illegal. You will find that there are different circumstances in different years for different cohorts. I have no doubt that in the long run, and it'll be the usual thing of it'll be a battle a day, there will be an element of redress. Like we're talking about refusing money to people who have disabilities, a cohort that have been absolutely um, failed by this state over many years. And look, the last conversation we've had is in relation to uh, elder care and the failings that have happened for many, many years. And sometimes it is a case of, these people just didn't matter enough to the state and it was an absolutely callous means of which they determined to fight every one of these instances. Um, and I, I would hate to be the person that's going out to defend this on the basis of on a legal technicality. And I think we need to get real. I, I suppose someone says, how could the state defend itself from ending up in these circumstances? And we know we could go back to hepatitis C, we go back to Bridget McCall, we, could, we, we know the the travesty that was cervical check and we know the whole issue in relation to institutional abuse and all we know is see if the state would actually start giving people their rights uh, we wouldn't be in these sort of instances but beyond that we have to do right on some of the wrongs that were done previously. That's not to say that there doesn't have to be an assessment done in relation to um, particular cohorts, how many people we're talking about, mm. and a bit of due diligence. But a major thing that we've looked for in the last while as well is that health ministers, whatever about the AG's report, but health ministers, and that's both present and previous, would be in in front of the health committee and answering questions in relation to how these determinations were made. Okay, well, this is going to dominate uh, the doll business uh, when it resumes uh, this afternoon and indeed we'll be hearing much more later in the day. Indeed, we'll be hearing much more about this in the next few minutes. But we leave there for the moment, Rory Amuraku, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, if a person was in a nursing home up to 2005 and they had a medical card, it was illegal to charge them if that was a public nursing home and uh, those patients and their families were reimbursed to some extent. 
but, but that was not the same if medical card patients were actually being cared for in private homes. And I, I do want to emphasise that this is largely an historic issue. It relates to nursing home charges prior to 2005, so that's uh, over 18 years ago. And disability payments prior to 2007, or perhaps even prior to 1996, and this largely relates to laws from the 1970s. Uh, We don't have all the facts yet. In fact, nobody does. Uh, As I said last week, we will do whatever is legally required just and in the public interest. Now, that's uh, Taoiseach Leo Bradker speaking in the Dáil yesterday, making the point that this goes back 18 years in time. Celine Clark, Head of Advocacy and Public Affairs with Age Action Ireland, in a letter to the Irish Times yesterday, said that there's an effort being made to, to frame this story as an historic injustice going back 18 years, if you like, with little relevance to contemporary society. But in many ways, our care system now is similar to the one in which this scandal took place. Celine Clark is on the line. Good morning to you, Celine, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, Just explain to us, if you would, uh, why you believe uh, that there's similar injustices taking place with nursing home care today. So... In Ireland currently, we don't have a statutory right to home care and the home care industry is unregulated. So in the context of that, people are oftentimes forced into nursing home care where they would prefer to stay at home. It's well documented. Most of us when we're older want to remain in our homes or at least in the communities in which we've built our lives. So the fact that we don't have a statutory right to home care in in the sense that we will be able to get care at home if we need it. Um, and the fact that the home care is unregulated forces people into nursing homes in situations maybe where they would otherwise not go. We also don't have a care strategy to establish coherence across the disjointed pieces of our care sector and anyone that's been through um, the care sector, through the GP, through the hospital, through the social care um, system when they come home to try and get access to physiotherapy and all the rest knows that that's a very difficult process at any age, whether you're doing that for yourself or your child or whether an older person is doing it for themselves either or you're doing it for someone that you you care for. Mm. The other issue is that the nursing home regulator, HICWA, has itself said it doesn't have enough powers to monitor the nursing home industry. And yet it's an industry that the state puts 1.1 billion euro um, was allocated in the budget in 2023. So we have a system that's not regulated strongly enough um, we also have a system then that, you know, sort of incentivizes private nursing home care because you can't get the care at home. Mm. And so we um, in Age Action and Care Champions and others have highlighted the experience of older people who are living in nursing homes um, and within their families during the COVID pandemic. Like anyone that knows someone who lived in a nursing home went through an awful lot of stress because they weren't able to support that person. They, the person in the nursing home wasn't able to have the pe- meet the people that they wanted and in some cases they didn't get access to all the care services that they wanted and they lost their autonomy and their independence, which is a breach of rights. Um, So this shows that older people are still at risk in those settings, in those long-term settings. But what it also shows, um, and the commentary from from government since this issue was raised um, in the the Mail on Sunday a couple of weeks ago, is that we still don't recognise 
and value older people in our society sufficiently <clears throat> to be able to act when it's needed. Where the state is just way too slow um, in responding to the needs of an ageing population and those of us who are older now. Mm. And we can see that now with, if you go back to the timeline of everything that has been talked about um, recently, and a lot of this was information that was in the public domain, obviously in 2005 or prior to 2005 when um, people then sort of said about, right, well, we better introduce legislation in order to be able to legally charge people um, for nursing home care. We can see that it took four decades for that to happen. Mm. And Um, private nursing home care is very expensive, as uh, I think a lot of people are fully aware. Uh, And when we talk about medical card patients being charged uh, for private care, uh, well, quite a lot of them... (sighs) would have been fleeced, uh, would have uh, really struggled to do that. <coughs> Many of them wouldn't have been able to do it or sustain it and would have had to take people home. Uh, there's a report in the Irish Independent today talking about 341 residents where the families ran out of money in the year before the Fair Deal scheme was introduced and many of them had to return home. That's according to a 2003 report by the Department of Health. Yeah, it's it's a really desperate situation when you're an older person and you need care um, because the state it has failed to provide for us in that situation. And these people, yes, maybe they, and, and this is the crux of the, 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 the controversy at the moment is to try and understand what these cases were about and what the state's litigation strategy was actually trying to defend. And our understanding is that people who were entitled to care because they had a medical card, so they were entitled to free nursing home care, um, were ended up in a private nursing home to, and had to pay for that care because they weren't able to access a public bed. And the state didn't provide sufficiently in terms of the beds, either contract them through the public, uh, through the private system, or deliver them themselves through the public system. So here we have a situation now where people end up in private care mm. and they can't afford to pay for it. And so their their needs are not being met. If they weren't able to be at home anyway, they definitely weren't able to be at home when they just couldn't afford to pay for it anymore. And we know that some families ended up selling family homes in order to be able to pay. We know that there was huge pressure put on um children of people who are living in nursing homes to meet those care needs, to meet those private nursing home bills as well Mm. and people really like scrimped and saved in a situation where it was unfair, possibly unlawful but definitely morally and ethically wrong. Well there maybe is uh, the point because uh, by all accounts it was not unlawful, Uh, it it was legally sound Uh, that seems to be the advice from the Attorney General it's the position that uh, the government has uh, taken throughout uh, the nursing homes uh, questions uh, but is it it morally uh, corrupt if you like uh, because anybody uh, who has uh, experienced nursing home care or has had a a family member in a nursing home uh, will know that that's probably the last place that they want them to be Uh, and the reason they're there is that it's impossible for them to care for them anywhere else Exactly. Like a lot of people, we will always need um, nursing home care because not everyone will be able to be cared for at home. So this, you know, we accept that that's there. But unfortunately, for people who can't be minded at home, they have to have access to care. 
And yes, now we have a nursing home sports scheme where you have to pay a certain amount for that care. And the 2009, the government finally acted and legislated to be able to charge people for that. We still don't have that for st- for home care. We still don't have a statutory basis for home care. And so that's a bit of a postcode lottery, depending on where you live or any given month, what sort of care you get. And most people know that half an hour in a day in the morning time to get somebody up and half an hour in the evening time to put them to bed is not enough. Mm. Um, and it doesn't support people to, to maintain a quality of life that they're that they want and that they're entitled to. In, in the 1970 Healthcare Act, this is the issue really um, that that's play here, yeah. whether the 1970 Healthcare Act entitled people to free care when they had a, a medical card. To inpatient and care. To Me- inpatient care, yeah. yeah. So if uh, you needed to go to hospital with a medical card, you shouldn't pay as an inpatient and uh, then that's extended to nursing home care. But on the other hand, the government says there was no entitlement to private nursing home care. And I don't think anyone is suggesting that if you chose to go into a private nursing home that you shouldn't pay for it. But the issue here is that people didn't always have the choice Mm. because the public beds weren't available and the government and the state didn't provide uh, sufficiently for it. Either they didn't provide it through the the HSD or the, the health boards at the time or they didn't purchase enough. It's a little bit like the government saying to people if... Um, there wasn't a public bed available for your husband, let's say, uh, and you couldn't afford to put him into a private home uh, and you couldn't look after him at home, uh, well, then you should have brought him to an emergency department and let the hospitals worry about it. Well, it's very hard to understand what the process was here. And we know Mm. that, and this is the issue, we know that people were treated differently. That's the key thing here. So, And some people who were able to take a legal action against the state because they could afford it, one thing. And secondly, they had the information and the knowledge to be able to do it. They appear, many of those got settlements. because. And the key thing is the state didn't allow a case to go forward to court in order to receive a judgment, which would have put a sound legal footing on what it was that they were doing or what it was they shouldn't be doing. And those settlements would have only been 40 to 60% of what they were entitled to. Yes. So the strategy seems to be up to 60% of what the person was entitled to. And if you imagine like an individual taking a case against the state, you know, possibly um, having had their life savings depleted or their, their the estate of their parents well eroded at that point, and they're just seeking what they feel they're entitled mm. to. It's not a new benefit, mm. as might have been suggested in in recent... Um, trying to care for a loved one, apart from anything, Celine, because, I mean, when somebody goes into a nursing home, uh, the family's involvement doesn't end there. They end up being very busy, spending a lot of time travelling and a lot of time in the nursing home and then trying to get home and get their clothes washed and eat or whatever else it is they do before they go back to the nursing home. Uh, and that would be one potential scenario. The other potential scenario is that you're asking people to take a case against the state when they're in mourning. Exactly, exactly. And that's it. And and it was it's a key point in law as well that the, sta- the estate of the person who's deceased cannot be uh, settled. So it would only be a case where you could bring um, a legal case against the state on behalf of someone else's estate. Um, first of all, if you had uh, some 
um, say in it. So you had to maybe be an executor on the will, but it had to be in probate also. Mm. Um, so if the estate was settled, you couldn't bring a case. So that locked a lot of people out as well that maybe didn't know, you know, under statute yeah. limitations of six years that they couldn't proceed in that way. And then, of course, you have a situation which happens in lots of families where not everybody is in agreement <laughs> with, you know, a person going into a nursing home or how an estate or how a will has been drawn up. Um, not everybody, you know, contributes equally necessarily to the the care of the people in their family that need the care, and not everybody benefits either. Um, so there was a lot. There's all of that going on as well. So yeah. these things are very complicated, and um, so that's why it was so important for those individuals that were able to take a case that the state knew that the, what they were doing was closing off an avenue to other people because they weren't letting it go to court for judgment. And so that's what they didn't want to happen. Okay. That would uh, appear to be the case whether that was legally uh, uh, permissible or or not uh, is irrelevant to a lot of people. It's Uh, irrelevant, uh, And uh, and I think the point you you were making in your letter yesterday is uh, there should be an advocate for older people, a commissioner for ageing and older persons, you said. Yeah, Age Action has long campaigned for a commissioner for ageing and older persons and this sort of latest controversy is exactly why uh, we need to have an independent body that is charged with overseeing um, the policies and the delivery of services that impact on older people's lives. Um, and it's not just about care, it's about everything. Anyone who you know tries to challenge what pension they're getting or who tries to um, you know talk about adequate housing for older people and our policies for the long-term housing and we've talked about this before in terms of um, the whole issue around right sizing and choice and control over your life so it's not just an issue of care and why we're seeking a commissioner for ageing and older people it's the full range of issues that are affecting the currently 1 million people over the age of 60 who are alive in Ireland today and this would really help to counteract the power imbalance that we see time and time again that the state uses its weight against vulnerable groups and unfortunately that includes many older people. Celine, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Celine Clark is Head of Advocacy and Public Affairs with Age Action Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Actually, the Buckies are taking odds now, or giving odds now, on Bertie Ahern becoming uh, the next uh, president. Uh, I'd imagine Mr Ahern would like uh, to put a few quid on that. Uh, he put 20 quid on it so far, I suppose, by re-entering uh, the party, and uh, that's the cost of membership. Uh, but he, he does like a, a flutter. Do you remember he had thousands of euro or pounds or whatever it is in the suitcase under his bed uh, that he won on the horses uh, and he didn't have bank accounts and all of that sort of thing. I think if there is a presidential election uh, they're the kind of questions uh, that the former Taoiseach will be asked about. You're welcome to share your thoughts with us on whether you like the idea of Bertie Ahern for president or not. As usual the same old telephone numbers that we give to you every day 0419832000 that's 0419832000 32000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 if you think Bertie should run for the Oris or not text or whatsapp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie margaret thank you for your text message to the program this morning she says the majority of people in this country couldn't afford to go to court 
only the rich can afford to do that or a criminal who gets free legal aid at the taxpayer's expense. The justice system is far from fair here for people in between. Paddy Duffy says you really have to ask yourself where the hell is the wealth generated in this country going to? It's definitely not being paid to the tax payer, the tax-paying man or woman. This country is constantly either fourth or fifth in GDP per head of population in the whole world. For Christ's sake, says Paddy, uh, distribute some of that wealth, I think, uh, the sentiment. We certainly have a lot of poverty in the country at the moment, Paddy. Taoiseach, uh, the levels of child poverty in the state are absolutely unacceptable. We've seen the worsening situation for workers and families laid bare in a report by Barnardos published this morning. You're probably familiar with their key findings. One in 10 parents using food banks over the past year, that's double compared to last. One in five parents with not enough food at some point to feed their children. 29% of parents skipping meals so that their children have enough to eat. And this, Taoiseach, is Ireland in 2023 on your watch. Families had been already saddled with out-of-control rents, heating bills, um, and and so on. Um, Child poverty and food poverty and wider poverty can be resolved, but only if there's the political resolve to do so. Uh, This is an issue, I should say, that doesn't only impact on families in receipt of social welfare, but also on on families where one or both parents are working. So I want to uh, ask you, Taoiseach, what package you will consider to include a living wage? I believe we Uh, need a spring bonus for social welfare uh, recipients um, and further supports in respect of energy costs. Taoiseach, uh, will you put together such a package and when will you announce it? Right, that's Mary Lou MacDonald, Sinn Féin president in the Dáil yesterday. Uh, There are some measures on the way. There is going to be a package of measures announced by the government. Uh, That might happen as soon as next week. Levels of child poverty in Ireland are too high. Um, They had been falling for several years uh, on our watch. Um, I'm sorry you weren't uh, willing to acknowledge that, but they had been falling consistently for several years uh, on our watch because of the policies that we've pursued as a government. Um, The cost of living crisis in the past year has changed that, and I want to acknowledge that, that there are many families that are really struggling uh, to make ends meet in a way that was not the case uh, only a year ago. Uh, And we've done a lot in the budget to help. Uh, And aside from the budget to help, including increases in pensions and welfare, reductions in income tax, uh, and also reductions uh, in costs like childcare, for example, um, the rent credit, for example. Um, And we will, of course, uh, over the course of the next few weeks, examine what we can do to help people uh, in the spring. Right, that's the Taoiseach Leo Vradker. He's saying in the next few weeks, and he did say yesterday, possibly as early as next week, an announcement will be made. What about the old Taoiseach, Bertie Ahern? Should he run for the Auris? Uh, A text from Marie who says, uh, run for the Auris, Bertie Ahern should run for the hills. Thanks for that. Uh, We'd a first-time texter, I think, to this programme at least. uh, Didn't give her name, uh, but her photograph comes with her message. And she says, absolutely no way would I see Bertie Ahern uh, as our president. Thank you for making contact. Good to hear from you. Deirdre and Kel says, Bertie for president. He'd make a good president. uh, And I was going to put my name forward. What do you think? I think that's a great idea, Deirdre. Thank you for making contact today too. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, uh, the Ukrainian president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, was in London yesterday where he was promising victory. We know 
Russia will lose. And we, we really know the victory, the victory will change the world. And this will be a change that the world has long needed. The United Kingdom is marching with us towards the most, I think, the most important victory of our lifetime. It will be a victory over the very idea of the war. After we win together any aggressor, it doesn't matter, big or small, will know what awaits him if he attacks international order. Now, Mr. Zelensky was confident of Ukraine being victorious, but he was also looking for help and he brought with him a fighter plane jet pilot's helmet uh, to make the point. The helmet of a real Ukrainian pilot. He is one of our most successful aces and he's one of our kings. And the writing on the helmet reads, we have freedom, give us wings to protect it. And uh, the British government looks set to give uh, those wings or those fighter jets uh, to Ukraine. A similar appeal undoubtedly will be made today when Mr Zelensky will address EU leaders. Let's speak to Karen Coleman, who's uh, the editor of EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Karen, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Uh, it's a big move uh, for the British to provide uh, these uh, fighter jets uh, do you think uh, that other countries will follow suit? Um, I mean I think certainly we'll see some countries following suit and we know of course that Zelensky also spoke to the German and uh, French leaders yesterday and as I speak to you actually I have it on on mute here but um, uh, President Zelensky is in the European Parliament in Brussels at the moment and its President Roberta Metsola is speaking and she will invite him to the stage shortly. He is no doubt going to give an equally powerful speech and, and you know, plea for additional, particularly military help when he addresses the European Parliament. And of course, he's going to also be talking to EU leaders, including um, our own Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, when he meets, when he goes to the European Council Summit, which is currently taking place also in Brussels. So President Zelensky is on a major EU push to try and get as much military support as possible. And he's an incredible speaker, of course, Michael, you just playing some clips there. But I remember the first time he addressed the parliament virtually his bunker um, in Kiev, and um, I remember the translator because he spoke in in his own language. He didn't speak in English at the time, and the translator was breaking down as he was translating what President Zelensky was saying. Now he's um, speaking in English, and it, I'm sure he's going to speak in English too in the European Parliament. And he's a very, very powerful speaker. You know, whether he writes writes his own speeches or someone else. They really hit the powerful points. Also, when he spoke to the U.S. Congress, it was the same thing. So I think he will, you know, he's on this push now to get more and more military equipment into Ukraine. And I would doubt he will leave empty handed. Mm. I will think that, you know, he will, this will result in, in more 
munitions being sent to Ukraine. I think there was a lot of concern uh, when uh, a lot of countries were lining up after each other to provide uh, these very powerful tanks to Ukraine. I imagine there was some unease at the President's speech yesterday because he he spoke about a a coalition in defiance of uh, the might of the Russian army on many occasions and becoming part of that coalition is where the problems might lie. It's one thing as well, tanks going after Russian troops that are invading Ukraine. It's another thing, fighter jets leaving Ukraine and attacking Russian territory. If those planes are are coming from Europe or NATO or Europe and NATO, well, then they could very well be seen as part of that coalition and as a legitimate target by the Russians. Is there any unease uh, uh, across Europe about that? Oh, of course there is, Michael, a a lot of unease. I mean, this has always been, you know, I suppose the shadow that has overhung this conflict is the spectre of it becoming a wider conflict and drawing EU countries and and European countries at large into this conflict. And of course, the deeper the cooperation, shall we say, or the giving of munitions – and military aid to Ukraine, the more European countries, and of course the US, will be seen by Russia to be getting involved in this. And of course, this is, you know, the real concern that ultimately we'll all be drawn into this conflict. Now, Zelensky, of course, has said in the past. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That Ukraine is fighting for the freedom of all of Europe and, you know, this war will be contained there. But, of course, um, this is a real concern. And it's one thing giving, you know, humanitarian aid and non-military aid. But it is another thing when that gets raised to a higher level and then European countries or the United States are sending, you know, jets, 
tanks, serious military equipment to Ukraine. Um, and, and that is the danger that Russia at some stage will just say, well, I'm sorry, but you're supporting Ukraine. Mm. It is your tanks and your guns and your jets that are now fighting our soldiers on the front line and killing our troops. And you can imagine mm. how that message, distorted and all as it might be by the Russian propaganda machine, is going to go down in Russia. Mm. And, and that is the concern. On the other hand, of course, do we all sit with our arms beside our, 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 by our sides, at least, and not do anything and let the Ukrainians take all the suffering and fight this fight for freedom and democracy, as Zelensky has said many times, and do nothing. And I mean, therein lies the terrible dilemma, I suppose, that yeah. governments face in this. Two weeks tomorrow will be the 24th of February, a, a year since uh, the Russian invasion. And I think the expectation from Ukraine, at least, is uh, that they're uh, going to launch an offensive to really up the ante uh, to convince people at home that the year hasn't been futile, I suppose, by being able to report some victory or victories. Uh, and uh, I take it there's a, a lot of concern about what might happen in the very short term as well. Well, yes, of course. I mean, there's anticipation, I suppose, that there would be an escalation in, in, in military activities from both the Ukrainian and indeed the Russian side. Um, I mean, really, it's almost the case now that the Ukrainians are more are better equipped in terms of military acumen and of course they're getting you know um, assistance from intelligence sources no doubt from the likes of the United States as well they've performed you could argue very well in terms of being able to defend themselves I mean if you remember the early days of the war a nearly a year ago now Michael as you say Remember, there were the Russians were surrounding Kiev, were very close to Kiev, and and there were in in parts of Ukraine that it looked like if they pushed further, they would take over the whole country, and they were pushed back. I mean, the military uh, defense has been extraordinary. Now, of course, there's you know the areas where Russia always had been, the Donbass region and others in that part of Ukraine are much harder for the Ukrainians to regain control. But certainly um, they came from a situation where they were very much, from a military perspective, the underdogs to really um, changing tactics, being much more savvy about how they can take on the Russians. And this has been extraordinary. And of course, what has also been quite a revelation uh, was the weakness at times of the Russian military uh, defence. And, you know, lots of things have been um, exposed about their own vulnerabilities and their their lack of military equipment as well. But, of course, anniversaries, particularly military anniversaries, can bring out these awful atrocities, the need for both sides to claim that they are on top of this war. So... Um, in 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 whatever now by on the 24th of february of course it is you know it is going to cause unease for all of us let's hope it passes without too much blood mm. um and and killing of lives um and and you know we'll have to see how all this unfolds over the next 12 months and zelensky of course at the same time as pushing for military equipment he's also mm. looking for an acceleration in the process of getting Ukraine into the EU, which is, I can tell you, a major challenge. You've seen how and you know, heads have had to roll in Ukraine because of allegations of corruption and all of that. The EU is behind the scenes 
telling Ukraine to clean up its act. And um, the process of becoming a member of the European Union is can be extremely long and complicated. But this is the sort of the other diplomatic move, if you like, that Zelensky is making. So on the one hand, he's looking for more military assistance. And on the other, he wants the EU to accelerate the process of Ukraine becoming a member of the bloc. Okay. Uh, separately, uh, there's some very interesting news for European le- leaders to mull over from uh, the UK Supreme Court. A, a group of unionists in Northern Ireland and Brexiteers, uh, which included the likes of uh, the TUV's Jim Allister, Arlene Foster of the DUP and, of course, former First Minister and Ben Habib, uh, former British uh, Brexit Party MEP, uh, were part of, of uh, this challenge. Uh, but uh, it appears as though the UK Supreme Court uh, has dismissed uh, their case and have said that the Northern Ireland Protocol is sound and lawful. Yes, uh, this is a very significant ruling from yesterday, the British uh, Supreme Court ruling that, as you said, the protocol is, is lawful. The five law lords unanimously dismissed the appeal. On, there were three grounds, three legal grounds that the group of unionists had brought. It had been already rejected by two lower courts. Um, but this is very significant because I think it just puts a line in the sand now in terms of a- any legal ambiguities about the protocol. Um, the, those who oppose it, I mean, they can't go any further in terms of any legal appeals about whether it's constitutional or not. This is, you know, a final answer on that. And I think that will bring relief uh, to those circles in Brussels, which are involved in the negotiations behind the scenes, the ongoing negotiations on the technical talks with with the UK, at least, on trying to resolve these outstanding issues to do with the protocol. I mean, I think if the Supreme Court had ruled in favour of the appellants, then that would be have, have really been a thorn in the side of those involved in the negotiations. So I think certainly there will be relief on this. And it's interesting, I mean, that there was unanimity um, from the five law lords and that they dismissed all three elements of the case. I mean, the, 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 those who, who were bringing that uh, legal case had said that the Act of Union, which had originally uh, included Northern Ireland itself, which was created um, in 1921, that they, they concluded that that was lawful um, and they concurred earlier uh, judgments as well. So, I mean, the, I think there was a very clear answer on, on those legal challenges that were brought by the Unionists. Mm. Are they answers that the British government may use uh, in discussions with unionists uh, because I think there is some suspicion that the British government is poised to do a, a deal uh, but that may not be accepted by the DUP in particular. It's going to be extremely difficult Michael for a deal to be accepted by those parties in the in Northern Ireland that have been against it. I you know I, I doubt anything is going to satisfy them other than the protocol being ditched And we see now that the UK, the British government, has receded from pushing through its own Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. So, um, I I mean, I think the British government are likely possibly to sacrifice the hard Brexiteers and those uh, communities in Northern Ireland who are very unhappy about the protocol to just get a deal done. I mean, there are the talks are continuing. Mara Shevkovic, uh, the EU commissioner, of course, has been dealing with all of this, met with 
uh, Chris Heaton-Harris yesterday, um, the Northern Ireland Secretary, and they met in Brussels, and they're continuing to meet. And, you know, they're talking about, uh, Heaton-Harris tweeted yesterday that they had agreed solutions. We agreed solutions to the protocol must work for the benefit of all communities and businesses in Northern Ireland. That's what he tweeted. And and then um, there were tweets that the UK teams are continuing to talk uh, and that the British Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, is continuing to remain in touch with the, with the uh, groups in, the, in, in, in Brussels and with Shevkovich himself. So I think there is, um, I think we can see there, there, are, there are strong efforts to ch- try and resolve this. And the British government, of course, will be trying to emerge, I suppose, victorious in some way or another that they'll have clinched a deal that will seem like they got a lot of what they wanted. And on the other hand, Brussels will probably say, well, you know, we, we are trying to be uh, as flexible as possible. I'd be kind of optimistic mm. when you, you, you know, you, you read the tea leaves over there. You, you kind of think, I think they are closer to a deal. But invariably, people, particularly hard Brexiteers and those in Northern Ireland who are against the protocol, they won't, it's very unlikely they'll be happy with any outcome other than a ditching of the protocol, which doesn't really seem likely right now. Okay, thank you indeed, Karen, for joining us as always. Karen Coleman, editor with EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Now, speaking of the Northern Ireland protocol, uh, and indeed uh, what may happen if uh, all of that falls apart, uh, of course, uh, we're in a a pretty strange position because it's led to a state of stalemate in Northern politics once again and an impasse which has seeing the institutions closed down and it seems very unlikely that uh, there will be government, uh, that Stormont will be restored, that there'll be an assembly or an executive uh, come uh, the 25th anniversary of uh, the Good Friday Agreement in April. Thanks to Peter who's been on the phone to us and saying why not put Bertie Ahern forward for the role as president after all that he did for this country in terms of bringing peace to this island after 800 years. Bertie Ahern uh, is somebody that we should all be proud of for the work he did on the Good Friday Agreement and good that Fianna Fáil have decided to forgive and forget before the 25th anniversary. Uh, another text from Margaret who says the Oris for Bertie, how about a tent in Galway? Uh, thanks for that as well. Eamon Indunlear says, wouldn't the Ukraine leader be much better off staying at home in his own country fighting with his troops instead of swanning around other countries trying to start another world war? I'm starting to think he's nothing but a comedian. Uh, thanks, uh, Eamon, uh, for that. Of course, uh, Mr. Zelensky uh, did uh, begin his career as a comedian as I think some local listeners may remember when they saw him perform in the TLT in Drogheda. Eamon also says uh, that, as Bertie O'Hearn once said, when he crippled the whole country, not getting the Bertie Bowl built was his biggest disappointment. It's amazing how people forget what goes on with some of these people in power. It's very simple to look at the amount of times people voted in that shower into government. Uh, thanks very much, Eamon in Dunleer. Don't mince your words, whatever you do, eh? Uh, another text uh, about uh, Bertie O'Hearn saying, uh, is the presidential job now paying cash in hand? <laughs> That's Matthew in Drogheda. Thanks very uh, uh, much, Matthew. Uh, he also wonders if Thomas Byrne uh, will support him back into Fianna Fáil. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> please ask him that, says Matthew. We'll do that for you, Matthew. Of course, of course we'll do that, Matthew. Uh, and thank you indeed uh, for your text message to the programme. Uh, if you'd like to make comment on Bertie Ahern re-entering Fianna Fáil and possibly going on to be nominated as the next President of Ireland, you're welcome to do so. Our telephone number is 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, I was up early this morning, but when I looked at, at uh, the newspaper, uh, I was reading 11,000 people that had died across Turkey and uh, Syria. Uh, that figure has now increased to, to 16,000 recorded deaths. There are, of course, many thousands of people who are dead uh, who have not been recorded as having passed away. Their graves are under the rubble. Uh, there's many thousands then uh, who are without water or who are without heat in sub-zero temperatures. And, of course, uh, there is uh, the considerable risk of a disease coming into this area now. It is uh, beyond comprehension. Bishop Michael Reuter, the Auxiliary Bishop of Armagh, is on the line. Good morning to you, Bishop Reuter. Thanks uh, for joining morning, us Michael. on the programme. How, how does anybody make sense of this? Is there a God? Yeah, that's always a question that's asked, um, particularly in, in the face of such a an overwhelming uh, tragedy that is happening uh, in Turkey and in Syria at this moment. And uh, our hearts go out to everybody there and to uh, the people who are doing their best to try and to help and to alleviate the situation. Um, it really is absolutely terrible, as you say, and um, they, they, the emergency continues because of the weather situation. I mean, it's a very um, cold time of the year. These are the coldest uh, months of the year. And uh, there's a real need now at this point in time to get emergency aid uh, to the people in in Turkey and in Syria. And the best way that people can do that is by making a contribution, uh, particularly uh, through the Irish Emergency Alliance and their uh, website. There's a number of different um, aid groups who who get together to to respond quickly to these uh, terrible disasters. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the people will probably think, well, OK, we'll, we'll get together, we'll put together blankets, we'll put together food, we'll, we'll send out a, a truck or whatever, but actually the aid is needed immediately. So the best way that people can help at the moment is to make uh, a donation uh, through the Irish Emergency Alliance, of which, of course, Troker, the church agency, uh, aid agency, uh, is a lead member uh, of that. So you can go to the Trokra, uh, website as well, mm-hmm. and I, I suppose it's in, in in those type of contributions and in the work that's been done by so many agencies that we see the work of 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 God uh, working through ordinary human beings um, in the response and the charitable response to what is an absolutely terrible tragedy. And yes, it's it's what we call a, a natural event, a mm-hmm. natural mm-hmm. tragedy, but. Usually, these events affect the poorest people, and uh, you know there, there's other issues which lead to such huge loss of life. You know, I, I, I was uh, working in in Los Angeles in in 1992 in a parish there, and um, 
I was involved in a in a, a seven uh, scale a Richter scale uh, earthquake while I was there, and two people died. Mm. Uh, you know, in a city the size of of Los Angeles, because of of the prosperity of that area and of the fact that all the buildings were built according to certain specifications and were able to withstand uh, the force of the earthquake. Uh, whereas, you know, the the earthquakes in, in, in Syria and Turkey, they've had a devastating effect because people in those areas are so poor. Mm. Syria, of course, already has been oh. wracked by war for mm. so long. You know, and, so. and many of the people uh, who have lost their lives are... Uh, refugees uh, and uh, many of the survivors are refugees uh, but there's so many people uh, across this huge region uh, who were living normal lives who are, are now homeless uh, and are in this dire position um, where if you're without water and uh, you're uh, finding that there's sewage in the water supply system yeah. the likes of cholera and that can spread very quickly yeah, there's a real risk of that. That's that's the big problem at the moment. Unfortunately, as the days go by, uh, there's probably little chance of finding too many people alive within the uh, the rubble. But the they, next, they will be miracles uh, at this stage. After there the, will be miracles after, after, after the first three days, though. There's very little uh-huh. hope. Uh, very little to, chance. Yeah, and and uh, you know the, the, the what what the important thing is now is to stop that second. Mm. Uh, uh, catastrophe happening, yeah. which which is as you say, lack of water, lack of food, mm. lack of shelter, and at this time of and, year, uh, lack of clean water in particular, uh, and corpses decomposing underneath that rubble. Uh, undoubtedly, there's going to be a, a, a lot of illness on top of a lot of death, uh, and the pain and the burials that people will be facing. Uh, and undoubtedly, uh, people across Turkey and Syria will be remembered on Saturday. It's the Church's World Day of the Sick. It is. It is. Yeah, it's a special day of, of prayer every year uh, for people who are sick and suffering uh, throughout the world. Uh, Pope Francis always issues uh, a, a statement or a message for World Day of the Sick. And, and, and this year's uh, message is based on the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and that really is very apt in, in the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment, uh, that, you know, the Good Samaritan didn't leave the man who was beaten up by the robbers abandoned on the side of the road, but he did what he could from the little that he had uh, to help him, to bring him to what was effectively the hospital of the time, which was the the inn, uh, and paid the innkeeper to uh, to look after him, and he checked up on him again afterwards after a few days uh, so there's many aspects of that parable which, uh, you know, uh, are so appropriate uh, in the world today. So it is a universal message uh, to to remember those who are sick and suffering in so many different ways mm. uh, in our world. Okay. Uh, it's a, an interesting uh, way of looking at it. Um, I, I'm not sure uh, if uh, everybody uh, looks uh, to emulate um, the Good Samaritan. Uh, we were talking about refugees a, a moment ago uh, in Syria and in Turkey. Uh, there were some refugees who arrived uh, into Navin in the last couple of weeks from Ukraine, women and children uh, who were housed in a former B&B uh, only to be greeted by a small group of people outside 
uh, who were shouting obscenities at them and telling them to go home and that Ireland was full and that sort of thing. Uh, that's a, a good distance uh, from the type of example you were uh, just outlining yeah. for us there. Yeah, it surely is. And, and I'm appalled by it, really, to be honest with you. I, I, I think it's terrible, but I think it's still... I, I discussed this with you the last time I was on with you, and I, I think know. it is really a small a small group of people who are, are whipping up this response uh, from... Um, from others, you know, and trying to uh, to to um, stand against uh, the, the the help that we have to give, we have to 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 reach out to the um, refugees, particularly those coming from Ukraine at the moment, um, because we're hopeful that it will be a temporary, uh, you know, response that we won't need to to continue to do to do this for a long time that eventually that hopefully there will be a resolution to the war and that people will return to Ukraine but we have to respond and and for people to try and whip up opposition uh, to that and particularly to focus on the poor people who are suffering the most mm. who are the refugees it's just it's appalling there's, yeah. there's no words to, to describe it really uh, um, I hope you don't mind me asking this but I, I, I've seen some of uh, these people talking a, a, on the internet as well and saying you know we have a Catholic tradition in here and sort of uh, implying that uh, people with other religions and I, I think there's no doubt people with other skin colours are, are not welcome here yeah, there's definitely a, a racist element in it. There's that can't be questioned. I mean, definitely a racist element. But actually, the Catholic tradition should make us more open to uh, to people coming in and helping people in whatever way mm. that we can. Uh, because we see the, the the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, that uh, sometimes the you know the the, the Outreach of, of of goodness and and charity comes from an unexpected source. But we, as Catholics, we uh, need to be at the forefront uh, of helping those who really genuinely uh, need our help. Uh, and I would encourage people as much as possible to try and to uh, to to make whatever space they can available to uh, to. Um, mm-hmm. The refugees who are coming from the Ukraine at, at the moment, and to ignore a lot of these extremist voices, mm. they can, you know, they can play on people's fears yeah. very often times okay. and people's vulnerability and. Yeah. and uh, just uh, want that your, your comments will be uh, appreciated far and wide, Bishop. Thank you uh, for talking about that. Uh, just to ask you again about World Day of the Sick, which is on Saturday. The Church uh, will recognise and pray for the sick, but also their families, carers, healthcare workers, uh, and uh, scientific researchers, uh, for that matter. But um, on a, a, a societal. Uh, platform the church is uh, looking at healthcare uh, systems uh, and the standard of healthcare as well, and uh, that there should be efficient and appropriate healthcare for people. There should definitely, and and uh, it's something that the Pope, uh, you know, calls for uh, in his his message this year that that. Uh, there should be, uh, you know, a pressing need for for strategies and proper resources in order to guarantee every person's fundamental right to basic and decent health care. And that is absolutely necessary. Uh, it's central to our, our whole Catholic social teaching, uh, the dignity of the human being, looking after the human being, particularly when they are vulnerable themselves and not able to look after themselves. 
so, you know, it's very difficult to get it right. Um, we have seen that there has been a lot of resources put into uh, to healthcare in this country, and and still we have lots, lots and lots of of, of problems and and issues. Uh, but I think we need to to look at how we make those decisions. That a lot of our decisions about healthcare seem to be very centralised, and uh, people who are totting up the figures and all the rest rather than having the decisions made at a more localised regional level mm. uh, where local people, local politicians, healthcare uh, professionals, um, along with the administrators, are all together making the decisions for the region and for the area and what's best uh, for the people there mm. so that we can respond uh, quickly and adequately uh, to people's healthcare needs. Okay, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. It's uh, much appreciated as always. B- Bishop Michael Rooter is uh, the Auxiliary Bishop of Armagh and Chair of uh, the Council of Healthcare of the Irish Bishops' Conference. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, trade unions representing healthcare workers were in front of uh, the Oireachtas Health Committee yesterday, and I, I think a lot of uh, people were taken aback by what Sylvia Chambers told the committee. Uh, she's an emergency paediatric nurse, and she spoke about the abuse that she endures on a daily basis, and that it's the type of abuse that has been going on some while over a number of years, but it has never been worse. Verbally attacked, spat at, threatened that she would be stabbed when she was going home from work as she was getting into her car. Uh, let's speak uh, to Maeve uh, Brehany, who's Assistant uh, Director of Industrial Relations with the INMO, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. A very good morning to you, Maeve, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, you're well accustomed to hearing reports like that of Sylvia Chambers. Good morning, Michael. Yes, unfortunately we are. It's not news to the INMO, um, but unfortunately it's it's experiences that our nurses and midwives experience on a daily basis that is not been tackled properly by their employer, the HSE, uh, or indeed we believe um, the HSA in terms of their responsibility. Um, and that's why we've called upon them to set up a... Um, a new division um, which focuses on health services in the same manner, I suppose, mm. as they have done in construction and agriculture for years. Okay. Uh, I would imagine most right-thinking people would say that this is unacceptable behaviour, uh, but uh, all the more unacceptable when it's a, 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 an attack on a frontline health worker and all the more exce- unacceptable when it's in front of children and sick children because, of course, Sylvia Chambers works in a children's hospital. She does, and I suppose people would have been surprised. Um, you think of a children's hospital, you don't think of assaults, but it is symptomatic of the overcrowding um, experiences that our members in, in all settings, be they paediatric or, um, or acute hospitals or regional hospitals, um, it's, it's, it's a daily occurrence, be it patient or these aggressions come from uh, both patients, family members, um, and visitors to the hospital, so it's a, it's a huge concern. Mm. She seems to be 
understanding of the frustration, though, that parents are, are feeling because uh, she was talking about 60 to 70 patients uh, waiting to see a, a doctor. It could be two o'clock in the morning. And there's only two doctors on duty. Uh, gets to four or five o'clock in the morning. And uh, I think she said that instead of knocking on her door, they're kicking her door down. Yeah, so you can you can appreciate a frustration that builds in a pressure cooker environment like that where people are concerned for their children. Nothing would condone the poor behaviours or assault on a frontline worker. But but the workers themselves see the unacceptable conditions that they, their patients and the families are having to experience. Again, because of poor workforce planning, insufficient um, nursing and midwifery staff um, on the front line and that's why we've called on the HSE to, to fully fund the, the safe nurse staffing framework. It has to be funded, it has to be underpinned by legislation and it has to, I suppose, have an accountability. The problem is when when the funding isn't given and the staff aren't on the front line, nobody else is held to account but it's the nurses on the front line um, that end up being at the, the brunt of that frustration from mm. From patients and and, uh, and others. Okay, I, I've never heard anybody uh, say anything bad about nurses. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, I think everybody uh, is very appreciative of uh, the professional care that nurses in, in this country uh, give uh, to people. Uh, but they also are acutely aware of how busy you are and under how much pressure you're under trying to uh, take uh, such important decisions for people when you're looking after them. Yeah, like uh, Sylvia would have said yesterday that they need to prioritise patient care based on what's presented with them. So if somebody is waiting longer but an emergency situation comes in, our priority is patient care. So, I mean, the frustration for nurses is they're not able to give the level of patient care that, you know, professionally and ethically they've always delivered and always wanted to deliver because there literally is not enough of them to go around. Mm. So they have to then prioritise patient care based on the, the needs that's presented to them at the time. And that means people are waiting longer, like extreme kind of times um, are being experienced right across EDs um, and, and through the wards as well, delays in, in patient care that aren't acceptable. But that has to, to, to fall back to the responsibility of the HSE to provide, you know, sufficient funded services, sufficient um, staff to fund, or to, sorry, to... Um, provide those services and the nursing care um, rather than it coming back to there's not enough nurses and, and then uh, they're the only ones in front of, of patients and families so they're the ones that get the brunt of it. Yeah, yeah, we thought COVID was bad and the pressure that was putting on hospital services uh, and indeed those who manned those services, the nurses and midwives uh, from your perspective uh, but it seems to have got a whole lot worse with hospital overcrowding uh, at its worst stage ever and to clear uh, those huge trolley numbers, staff fast to work seven day weeks and so on uh, if you went from a situation of being burned out as a result of the experience of COVID into the fire, from the frying pan into the fire uh, what's next and what kind of impact does this type of abuse have on people uh, personally? Um, it must take a, an awful toll on them when you're so tired and hardworking, doing your best and then to be abused on top of it. 
yeah, look, people are at the end of their tether, um, you know, expectedly. And it's having an impact not only on them, kind of, as you said, the, the individual, like people are dreading going to work. They're not sure what's, what's facing them when they go in. Well, sorry, they do know what's facing them. They know that there's not going to be sufficient staff. They know that it's going to be overcrowded. And that's having a, a huge impact on their desire to stay in the service. So we've we've surveyed members um, and, and they're coming out to say that over 70% are considering leaving uh, the profession. It's a real retention um, issue. And for attracting new people into the profession, um, you know, we have to consider the environment that we're asking these people to work in mm. um, because they will vote at their feet and they will walk out of the profession. Mm. It's very hard, uh, I think, in the last couple of months to have any discussion about anything without talking about immigrants. Uh, immigrants uh, are what keeps our health service afloat. Uh, I don't know where we would be if we didn't have foreign doctors and nurses in this country. I don't know if you heard the Taoiseach yesterday talking about protests outside of a Dublin training hospital, protesting that there were foreigners working in there, uh, or if you have any thoughts on that, mate. Uh, so if you look at the NMBI figures last year, the, the Nursing and Midwifery Board of Ireland, 60% of, of nurses registered last year were international nurses. We absolutely rely on, um, and I have an over-reliance actually mm. on nurses. Um, that, you know, even from a moral perspective, we're taking from services in other countries that need them um, and attracting them here to Ireland. You know, it, it, instead of marginalising any particular group, what we need to have is a workforce planning that looks at uh, what our service needs. And in terms of, of people coming into the country, it's the responsibility of the government to look at that from a population influx and needs, beds, increased of beds, mm. um, rather than blaming any particular group we absolutely need and respect. we need to respect mm. um, our oh, international workers and doctors and nurses. Yeah, you just hope that uh, those people who are protesting uh, outside of that hospital about it being staffed by foreigners don't end up sick uh, because they won't have somebody to look after them. I mean, that's the bottom line. It's beyond belief. I mean, we're talking about uh, abuse of staff. I just thought it was beyond um, all incredibility. Yeah, there there has to be a zero-tolerance approach to any violence or or aggression. We have to prevent, um, have a preventative approach. We have to have um, a priority within the HSE that... um, that this is front and centre because at the moment they're not coming forward. We're calling for this for years. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, but unfortunately, our members have been subjected to this and, and the people who are failing to protect them, uh, we believe, should be subject to prosecution. They have to support um, nurses and midwives mm. and all frontline workers. Okay. Well, I can uh, safely say that from uh, the feedback we get here that the vast majority of people who contact us, actually I don't think I've ever seen anything negative about nurses, uh, quite the opposite as I said. Uh, People are are very thankful and grateful and appreciative of uh, the professional work uh, that uh, your members do, Maeve. Uh, We have to leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us on the program today. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. That's uh, Maeve Brehany, Assistant Director of Industrial Relations with the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, the INMO. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Colin Mornington says, Ah, lads, you're being hard on poor Alberti. The money was only resting in his account. 
I imagine you're right, uh, Carl. Thank you indeed uh, for your text, as always, to the programme. Uh, another text uh, from Tom, who says, Michael, regarding Bertie, is suicide back on the menu? And I don't say this lightly. Uh, he says, this man is a disgrace. Fianna Fáil really are finding every way not to be in government next time. He says... Hmm, wonder why it would be the mess they are making. Thanks uh, for that, Tom. Um, That uh, comment about suicide uh, relates uh, to people who were predicting the crash uh, before 2008 uh, and uh, telling us uh, that we were going to need the kindness of strangers and uh, Bertie Hearn at the time talking uh, about the naysayers uh, and uh, would they commit suicide or something to that effect which he later withdrew and apologised for. Uh, It was a very uh, unthought through comment Uh, but not to be forgotten thank you Tom for reminding us Uh, we'd uh, Eugene McGuire in Drogheda who says Michael I think Bertie would be more entitled to become president than Mary Building Bridges McAleese was. What did she do for us says Eugene Paddy Duffy saying the Act of Union in 1800 included Great Britain and Ireland it took until 1922 for the 26 counties to break away so we probably haven't long to wait for the fourth green field. Thanks Paddy as always. We've uh, Tom saying Michael I don't think anyone has an issue with people coming here from Ukraine just like the Bishop said we must welcome people in his words from Ukraine. Why didn't he mention other countries? Why why is it swept under the carpet says Tom. Thanks Tom. Uh, Well I did ask him about the people from Ukraine specifically uh, and of course there's people coming from war torn parts of the world other than Ukraine uh, whether that's Yemen or Syria or Afghanistan or wherever uh, we uh, another text from somebody who says Michael I always want to offer help and welcome to anyone in need without distinction the only reason I would ever say we have to stop the numbers of people coming in is because I don't think they should have to go to somewhere that hasn't got the appropriate accommodation and facilities available for them. Yeah, There is concern uh, about that, what we have to offer, but perhaps it's better than um, the bombs. Jim says, I've been trying to get a, a doctor's appointment for an old lady. It's impossible for a sick lady living alone. All of our homeless people living on the streets uh, in Drogheda, the Dominican church is closed and locked. The church and the government should step up and take action. Enough money in Ireland to help everyone. Praying for people uh, who... Uh, have uh, to endure um, the aftermath of uh, an earthquake is easy. Actually doing something is better, says Jim. Uh, I think the bishop uh, did ask people to make uh, donations uh, to the agencies who are working to provide aid. Hi, Michael, says somebody else. Uh, The parable of uh, the good Samaritan seems to be lacking quite a bit with those protesters. Maybe they should be sent to Rwanda uh, and Ukraine all the way. That's Jerry Wilkinson uh, who says that. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, Another text uh, or phone call, actually, on the return of Bertie Ahern. Pat and that boy says, from the top down in Fianna Fáil, they will never get his vote again. That's Pat's vote. Uh, did Fianna Fáil not learn anything in the last 10 years? How could they let him back into the party? Mary says she can't understand why there is such a push to make everything cash free. Why are uh, or what are older people supposed to do? Many of them like to carry cash 
in case of an emergency, how can they give their grandchildren a few euro on their communion and confirmation uh, if uh, they're being put under pressure to go cash free? Yeah, well, that's, uh, I suppose, part of uh, the modern world and there are questions about it. Uh, If you are cash free, where does your money go? Uh, Is it to the banks? as we discussed uh, a few weeks ago. Mary, thank you indeed for your call to the programme. Thanks to everybody who was in touch with us today. Maggie McGuire was researching for us today. Brian Farley was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.